بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله خير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار in the previous lesson uh, we looked at the battle of khaybar and why the context to the battle of khaybar was that the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam uh, wanted to remove all of the obstacles and the barriers that were coming in between him conveying the message of tawhid to the people as he had been commanded and from those obstacles were a number of parties from those parties were the quraish the mushrikun of quraish from those parties were the various tribes in the uh, eastern region towards najd and likewise from those parties were the troublemakers or the instigators of sedition of trouble and treachery in the city of Medina itself and they were the yahud because they had violated their contracts they had violated their covenants and so in order to ensure that the da'wah to Allah proceeded in its appropriate course then each of these parties had to be put under control and as we said the context or the background to all of these uh, expeditions uh, military expeditions was uh, the the hindrance of the messenger of allah the oppression against the messenger of allah plotting treachery attempts at assassination and so on and so forth all of these things were you know the, the background or the context for why these expeditions were were necessary so we looked at the battle of khaybar uh, we looked at that battle uh in some uh, detail and this now leads us in this lesson to a number of uh, major events and so from them is the umrah uh, that was performed and likewise we if we we will also deal with a particular battle against the Byzantine uh, army or the emperor and if we have time inshallah we'll move on to the conquest of Mecca itself so Uh, the umrah itself if you recall from the treaty of hudaybiyah uh, there was an agreement that the messenger of allah sallam this is the year previously that he would return back to medina and there was an agreement that he would be able to come the following year which uh, in this case would be uh, i think 8th uh, the 8th after hijra and he will perform umrah with his companions and there were some uh, guidelines or some conditions that were that were part of that agreement and so In this year then in Dhul Qa'dah when the month approached uh, this was in fact actually towards the end of the 7th year of Hijrah uh, the messenger of Allah sallam he ordered the companions who were there at the treaty of Hudaybiyah who witnessed Hudaybiyah for them to make preparations to make Umrah and so he took with him around 2000 uh, men alongside some women and some children and there were also 60 camels to be taken for sacrifice and 
if you remember, the agreement was previously that the Muslims would not be allowed to take any weapons, except perhaps some scabbards that they could keep uh, with them. And the Messenger of Allah, they took their weapons, but left a group of the Muslims out on the outskirts of Mecca to hold those weapons, fearing that the Mushrikun might act treacherously. And there was good reason to believe that. So they took the weapons, uh, but as, as we said, they left them with a party of 200 men. So 200 men remained behind, eight miles away outside of Mecca, and they held the weapons. And the remaining went into Mecca, and they went to perform the Umrah. So they kept the, 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 the swords that they were allowed to keep in their scabbards. And so when they came, um, they began to make the Talbiyah. When they entered uh, Mecca, they began to make the Talbiyah. And the Quraysh left the area around Harm, around, around the Kaaba in particular. And they went to their tents on the hills to observe and to look at what the Muslims were doing. And so the Muslims, they made tawaf, and they did tawaf in such a way that they did it uh, briskly, vigorously. The Messenger of Islam, he ordered them that when they performed the tawaf, uh, to you know, do so hastily, briskly. And this was to show to the mushrikun, because the mushrikun, in their minds, there was a certain idea that these Muslims have been engaged in fighting and battles, and maybe they will be their spirits will be low. And this will be seen from them visibly in the way that they perform their rituals. And so the Messenger of Allah he ordered them that when you perform the tawaf, uh, that, they, that they do so briskly. And so the, the mushrikun can see the, you know, the fervor and the, 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 rig, the, the rigor and the vigor that they have, and to, see, to see that they have strength and that nothing has sapped their strength at all. And so they were ordered, uh, as we said, to run the first three rounds and then the walk, walk uh, normally in the remaining ones. So the mushrikun, when they saw and they were watching the, the devotion of the muslimin and how they devoted they were, you know, in, 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 in that tawaf, and obviously they, they observed and, and they noticed this and this was having a, an effect, you know, in their minds. So then, as Abdullah bin Rawaha radiallahu anhu uh, when he entered the haram, he mentioned some uh, lines of poetry. خَلُّوا بَنِي الْكُفَارِ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ خَلُّوا فَكُلُّ الْخَيْرِ فِي رَسُولِهِ الْيَوْمُ نَضْرِبُكُمْ عَلَى تَأْوِيلِهِ كَمَا ضَرَبْنَاكُمْ عَلَى تَنْزِيلِهِ So he mentioned some lines of uh, poetry, the general meaning of which is that, O oh, you disbelievers, get out of his way, meaning out of the way of the Prophet for indeed, all goodness is in his messenger, in Allah's messenger. And today we shall strike you upon its interpretation, just as we struck you, I mean fought against you, with respect to its revelation. To the end of what he, to, to the end of what he said. So this was a show of boldness, to show that we are here, our message is the truth. Get out of the way of the messenger of Allah, he's upon the truth. And just as we fought you on account of it being revealed, meaning that this is a true book revealed from Allah, then likewise with respect to the interpretation of its verses and the rulings therefrom, we shall likewise you know, fight you on account of that as well. So this was a display of, of strength. 
And so after the walking and running between As-Safa and Marwa likewise, the messenger of Allah he uh, stopped at the end, uh, at uh, Marwa, and he sacrificed animals and they shaved their heads. So now the main body of the pilgrims, as we said, the ones who, there was a, there was a group that was left outside of Mecca, but the main body had now performed uh, Umrah. And so those who remained behind, they were relieved of their duty of looking after the weapons, and they were allowed to come and to perform the Umrah as the remaining people had done as well. So this then takes us to the fourth day of the pilgrimage, because remember the agreement was that they could come and stay for three days, and then they would have to leave. And so the Quraysh, on the fourth morning of the pilgrimage, the Quraysh came to Ali bin Abi Talib, anhu, to tell him, to tell the Messenger of Allah that they have to leave Mecca along with his companions. So of course, sticking to the treaty, sticking to the agreement, um, the Messenger of Allah and likewise the Muslims, under his command, they would never violate any uh, treaties. So he ordered his men to depart and they went to a village called Sarif, and where they stayed there for uh, some time. Now, as they left this place, uh, Sarif, it was at this point when they were uh, settled at this place that the uncle of the Messenger of Allah, Al Abbas, عنه, he offered the hand of his sister in law, Maymuna, to the Messenger of Allah in, in marriage. And so he accepted this offer. And it was basically a means of tying the ties of kinship. And so this wedding actually took place in this uh, same place, uh, Sarif. And um, this is another major event that took place on the journey back. Now, with respect to this uh, Umrah, uh, some of the uh, narrators, when they speak about this pilgrimage, uh, they spoke of it in different ways. Uh, some of them said that this was basically a, an obligatory uh, Umrah, uh, which was performed instead of the one that should have been done the year before. And the other one said that this pilgrimage uh, is basically, uh, you know, uh, it, 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 was, it was performed on account of the terms of the treaty, not necessarily because it was wajib itself. So it's like a technical issue about this umrah that was performed. What was the what was the the, the, the nature? What, was it an obligation? Was it just something in relation to the, uh, the the treaty itself? So the jurists or the narrators on this, they when they narrated this, they spoke about it in slightly uh, different ways. But basically, in general, uh, there's different rulings that can be taken uh, from that. Obviously, that's a, a detailed uh, discussion. So this was the Umrah, um, in brief, that was simply a fulfillment of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah from the year before. And this takes us now to the next major event, and this is a battle known as the Battle of Mu'ta. Now this was probably the most fiercest battle, and one of the most important battles in the time, in the lifetime of the Messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. In fact, it was an initial battle that was the start of a series of conquests in the lands of the Christians, the Nasara. Why? Because it was against the Byzantine Empire or the Byzantine army, basically the, the, the Romans. Now this village or this town called Mu'ta, it is a village that's on the borders of Sham. 
So you go north from uh, Medina all the way up towards the borders of Sham. It is a town on the border there. And so the messenger of Allah he sent Al-Harith bin Umair al-Azdi on an errand to take a letter. And this letter was to be taken to the ruler of Al-Basra. Or Basra. On his way, he was intercepted by an individual who was called Shirhabil bin Amr al-Ghassani. He was a governor of a region called Al-Balqa. And he was actually an ally. He was allied to the Caesar of the Byzantine Empire. So he captured uh, this companion, Al-Harith bin Umair al-Azdi. And he acted in a treacherous manner. He tied him up, Al-Harith, and he beheaded him. Now, if you think about this, this, this action, this is an action uh, when you send a delegate or an ambassador or a messenger or, or a, a diplomat to any other head of state or other nation. Killing that individual or harming that individual is basically an, uh, it's basically a declaration of war. This is something that is understood between all, you know, all nations. That if you kill an ambassador, if you treacherously kill an ambassador who's just simply coming with a message, nothing else, there's nothing since he's coming with a message for diplomatic relations, and you kill him without any just cause, then this basically is an act of war. It's basically an announcement, open announcement of war. And it's also one of the most awful, most horrible of crimes. And as we said, it is a declaration of war. So the messenger of Allah, when he heard the news that this, this companion had been killed by this governor who was an ally of the Caesar of Rome, then he began to mobilize his army. Of, at this point, there was 3,000 men. And this was again to... Uh, Seek revenge for this companion, and you know um, the, the, the Zayd bin Haritha was put in charge, and Jafar bin Abi Talib was put as a deputy. That if Zayd bin Haritha was killed, he would replace him. And likewise, Abdullah bin Rawaha, he would succeed Jafar in case Jafar fell in turn. So basically, the messenger put three leaders or three uh, people in charge, one after the other each one taking the lead if the, the one in front of him was killed. Now, uh, the messenger told them that they have to go to the place of the murder of Al-Harith and first of all, invite the people to accept Islam. Now look, as, as we go through these battles and look at the little details which are present, you see that the messenger of Allah, he was sent to guide mankind. He wasn't there to just merely kill for the sake of killing or seek revenge for the sake of revenge. When we see that, when we see all of the actions that were done by the Messenger of Allah in these battles, and likewise when we see shortly in the conquest of Mecca itself, we will see something amazing about the uh, mercy, the clemence, the forgiveness of the Messenger of Allah and how he just wanted to guide the people. The first thing on his mind was to guide the people. And so here, when he ordered these three companions uh, who were sent, Zayd and Ja'far and Abdullah, he told them that first of all, ask them to profess Islam. So even though they or their leader, the governor, you know, committed this great act of, you know, this, this announcement of war and this treachery, 
He asks them first, invite them to profess Islam. And if they respond positively, if they accept Islam, there will be no battle. But if they persist, then fighting will take place. And then he ordered this army. Look at what he ordered them with. He said to them, أُغْزُوا بِسْمِ فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ مَنْ كَفَرَ بِاللَّهِ uh, go out and you know make battle in the name of Allah in the path of Allah whoever disbelieves in Allah la taghduru but do not act treacherously do not be treacherous meaning in in in, in battle wala tughayyiru and do not what this means is do not mutilate the bodies do not mutilate the bodies this is prohibited in Islam wala taqtulu walidan wala imra'atan do not kill a child or a woman. Wala kabiran faniyan, not an old person who is in old age. Wala munazilan bisawma'atin. And nor a person who is um, you know who is a recluse in a place of worship, like a monastery or something like that. Wala taqta'u nakhlan, wala shajaratan, wala tuhadimu binaan. And do not cut down the trees the date palm trees or any of the trees, and do not destroy the buildings. So all of these are from the, you know, from the ethic, this is the ethical, just form of battle. The Muslims have been ordered to make a just war with a just cause, and being just in the war, in, in, in the battle itself. And so from all of this, what we see, I mean, this, this uh, statement here of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu uh, we see that when we compare this to what is done by the khawarij of the past, whether the very first khawarij which appe- who appeared, or whether the khawarij of our times, they are exactly the same, there is no difference uh, between the two. We see that these people have absolutely no connection to the notion of jihad. What they are doing is not jihad. What they are doing is fasad, it is corruption, it is evil, it is destruction, and uh, they, the, the jihad that we are speaking of is the jihad of the Sahaba. If you look at the jihad of the Sahaba, and what they fought for, and how they fought, we see that the Khawarij, their fighting is for the sake of wealth. It is for the sake of taking control of the zakah, and wanting to receive the zakah so that they, as they claim, will be able to distribute it in a just manner. Why? Because the khawarij, when you see one of the major motivations behind them, uh, as, as we see from the narration, or from the advice of uh, Wahab bin Munabbih, uh, this uh, imam from the Tabi'een. And what happened is that, uh, if, if you look at the, the risala that, that he wrote, uh, he mentions how a man from the khawarij, it so happened that they were writing letters uh, to each other, and it happened that in the in these letters, what they were saying basically was that what they were telling the people is that your zakah is invalid. When you give your zakah to the rulers, it is invalid. Why? Because the rulers do not make it reach the people whom it's supposed to reach. This is what they claim, and so therefore you need to give your zakah to us, otherwise you have not fulfilled the obligation of zakah. And so the point being. That when, when, when you look at the khawarij and you look at the motivations of individuals, the leaders amongst them, like for example the one, that khabith, that munafiq who jumped 
on top of Uthman radiallahu anhu and stabbed him nine times. And he said, he said three of them were for Allah and six of them, six of them were, for, were for, for, for myself. Meaning that he had some grievance. He had some personal grievance or something. And for that reason, six of those stabs, in fact, none of those stabs were for the sake of Allah. They were all for himself and for shaitan. Is another example to show that the, 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 the khawarij are motivated by worldly reasons, worldly grievances. Wealth is not coming to them. Or they felt that someone in their family was dealt with unjustly. Likewise, we have another example of the, the khariji, who when Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu, anhuma, went to debate uh, to the khawarij. And when he came, Ibn Abbas was wearing a fine garment. A fine garment. And so this Khariji began to make issue with his clothing. Look at, look at how fine you are dressed in. And so Ibn Abbas then cited him an ayah that who has prohibited the good things that Allah has made lawful? The zina which Allah has made lawful. Who has prohibited this? The point being again, look at the Khawarij. What are they saying to you? They're saying, oh, look at this ruler, all of this extravagance, all of these cars, all of these palaces. Look at the, these clothes that he's wearing. Everything is to do with wealth. Everything is to do with personal grievances. So these khawarij, they are motivated by the dunya, by, by the dunya, but they clothe it in the garment of the deen. And so when we look at their activities, because they are motivated by the dunya, we will not see any justice, any just behavior in the way that they treat people in the way that they treat Muslims, in the way that they even fight in combat. Now look at this command of the Messenger of Allah that he gave to Zayd and Ja'far bin Abi Talib and Abdullah radiallahu anhum and how he ordered them to not behave treacherously, not to mutilate the bodies, not to kill children, nor women, nor an old person, nor those given to worship in the monasteries and not to cut trees or destroy buildings. And so, uh, with that advice to the Sahaba, we understand that the Sahaba, because they were motivated by establishing the Tawheed of Allah, which is the greatest justice. If you are going to establish the Tawheed of Allah, which is the greatest justice, you can only do so with justice. And so, in the very way that they fought, they fought with honor, with nobility, and in a completely in a completely just way, as we can see, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi he commanded them. So basically, from this, the lesson that, we're, uh, lesson that we can take from this is that we should never ever be, be deceived by the Khawarij, as the Salaf taught us, as Al-Ajurri mentions and other than him, that do not be deceived by the Khuruj. When a Khawarij, when he comes out, he makes Khuruj, like Usama bin Laden or Abu Qatada, Zawahir, all of those people who come out declaring the rulers to be apostates as the greatest, as if they're the greatest evil upon this earth. All of the faults are upon them. Every evil is because of them. It shows their jahl of aqidah, of the basic principles of aqidah. We should never ever be deceived, no matter how alluring, how beautified their slogans are. Why? Because they are not fighting in the path of Allah. They are fighting in the path of shaitan. And the greatest evidence of that is the actions you see emanating from them.
So, these companions, the three that were commanded by the Messenger of Allah, they uh, gathered together and then they went off. Uh, they gave farewell to the people of Medina. And so at this point, Abdullah ibn Rawaha, he began to cry uh, profusely and he was asked, why are you crying? And he swore by Allah that it wasn't because he was crying, he wasn't crying because he had to leave Medina and leave the dunya and leave his family and whatever else. And it was rather because he thought of the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَإِن مِّنْكُمْ إِلَّا وَارِدُهَا وَإِن مِّنْكُمْ إِلَّا وَارِدُهَا That there is none amongst you except that he will pass over it. Meaning, the bridge over Jahannam. كَانَ عَلَىٰ رَبِّكَ حَتْمًا مَقْضِيًّا It is something that is a decree of your Lord which must be accomplished. So this caused him to cry a great deal. And so the army, it left and it marched towards a place called Ma'an. Uh, which is again bordering on Syria. And as they alighted there, news came that Heraclius had amassed 100,000 troops. 100,000 troops. Now recall that the Muslims were 3,000 in number. 3,000 in number. And Heraclius had amassed together 100,000. Not only that, because there were many tribes from the Arabs in those regions who were allied with the Byzantine Empire, there was said to be another 100,000 troops, men, from numerous tribes, from Lakham, Judham, Balqain, many other tribes like this who were allied to the, to the Byzantines. So, you can imagine now that this is the first major huge battle with a nation, and they are outnumbered by, what is it, 3,000 to 2,000 is what, uh, 60-fold, 50-60-fold. And they were unsure as to what, we, what they should do. You know, because the, the, you know, the, 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 it's a very unfavorable uh, situation for them. And some of, the, some of the companions said, let's write a letter to the Messenger of Allah and see what he advises us with. And others said, Abdullah bin Rawaha, he was reluctant in this because he said, by Allah, this, you know, he told them that basically that you've come out to seek martyrdom. And when we are seeking martyrdom, we should not be looking at how many fighters that we have. We shouldn't count on the number of soldiers or the weapons, but rather we should count on our iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. By way of this iman that Allah has honored us with, then we should rush to win one of two things. Either it will be victory or it will be martyrdom. So he mentioned these words and discouraged those people who were, who were hesitating and thinking, let's seek advice from the Messenger of Allah. And so they began to proceed and they went to a place called Masharif in a town near, uh, called Al-Balqa. And they encamped at this place towards the Mu'ta where the battle took place. And... Uh, fighting started shortly thereafter and recalled that the Muslims were only 3,000 against an army of 150 to 200,000. Now, what happened in this uh, battle, the three leaders, Zayd bin Haritha, radiallahu anhu, uh, he took the leadership first. He fought tenaciously uh, with bravery until he fell and he was fatally stabbed. After him, 
as commanded, Ja'far bin Abi Talib, anhu, he took the banner, and in the battle, he jumped off his horse, he be, you know, resumed fighting because his horse had been uh, injured, hamstrung, and he fought until his right hand was cut off. So he took the banner with his left hand, and then his left hand was cut off in the battle. Then he clasped the banner with his arms until he was struck. One of the Byzantine soldiers struck him and he was cut basically in half, fatally. And this is why afterwards he was called, the name was given to him, basically in English, the flying Ja'far, or Ja'far with two wings. Uh, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as is narrated, uh, uh, he'd been stabbed 50 times as narrated by Al-Bukhari, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given him two wings to fly wherever he desired in the in Jannah. So he's called Ja'far, the flying Ja'far, or Ja'far with the two wings. Then after Ja'far, Abdullah bin Rawaha, radiallahu anhu, he then came and he took the banner on his horseback, and he too was you know, fighting and reciting verses until poetry until he was killed likewise and then after this another man called Thabit bin Al-Arqam he took the banner and he called upon the Muslims to choose a leader from amongst them and it happened to be Khalid bin Al-Walid who was chosen and Khalid bin Al-Walid as you know was a great strategist a skilled fighter an outstanding strategist and Al-Bukhari Al-Bukhari reports that whilst he was fighting Khalid bin Al-Walid he used nine swords. Nine swords were broken whilst he was fighting. Now, obviously he realized that the Muslims are only small in number, so he came up with this strategy. And the strategy was that basically he shifted the divisions, the right flank and the left flank, and he made them switch sides. And he made a group to come in through the back. So he split a group from either side. They swapped sides. One side goes that side, one side goes that side. And a group goes around the back and comes right through the middle. And the intent behind this was to make the enemy think that reinforcements of the Muslims had come. Right? So that the existing Muslims who were fighting were on either side. And in between them there appeared from the horizon another large army in order to you know, make the Byzantines to be a, a bit fearful. And so... Uh, what happened is, as they implemented this plan, uh, it kind of had an effect upon them. They believed that they were being trapped. They believed that this was a trap and there were Muslims coming from different directions and that this was some, some sort of, you know, uh, uh, like, like, like a trick. And uh, so they stopped and they held back a bit. And likewise, the Muslims, as they were fighting, they slowly retreated as well. And basically... The uh, battle ended like this, both parties retreated, no one really won. Uh, but the Muslims in the whole of this battle, they only lost 12 people, 12 martyrs. Whereas those amongst the Byzantines, Byzantines was a lot more. And um, as we said, no one really won this battle. But despite the fact that nobody won this battle, this battle was hugely significant. Why? It's obvious. How can an army of 3,000 Muslims hold at bay an army of almost 200,000 people. How can this be? How can it be? And what, did this, what effect did this have upon the reputation of the Muslims? Upon the reputation of the Muslims across the whole of the Arabian Peninsula. 
And the Byzantine Empire at this time was a huge empire, it was an empire to be you know, reckoned with, and anyone who wanted to fight against them was really, it was as if you wanted to self-annihilate yourself, destroy yourself. And so this army of 3,000 who are not better equipped than the Byzantines, they held them at bay, and uh, you know, the battle in itself was a kind of uh, a miracle in a sense, and it showed that the Muslims were an exceptional fighting force. And it's an evidence that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He aided them and He supported them and He supported His Messenger. And so once this battle had you know, uh, taken place, it put in a new idea in the minds of all of the people in the Arabian uh, Peninsula. And it convinced many tribes who at this point had been hesitant they hadn't accepted Islam. Like Banu uh, Ghatfan, uh, Banu Salim, Banu Ashjar, Banu Fazal. There was a number of different tribes and they hadn't accepted Islam at this point. But when they saw this formidable army of 3,000 holding back a complete empire of the, of the Byzantines, then it also made them change their lax attitude and decide to enter into Islam out of their own uh, free will. So this battle, in essence, what does it signify? It signifies that this was a starting point of conquests that would come thereafter against the major nations from them, the Byzantines, and likewise other countries that were to follow. This was the starting battle that signified the era of conquests. Now, uh, this brings us to the end of... Uh, this major incident, and this leads us now really to the conquest of Mecca itself, which is the next major event to take place. And the conquest of Mecca was the greatest conquest by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He honored His religion, He honored His messenger, <coughs> and He honored those honest, truthful believers who struggled in His path. Is from the greatest of the victories granted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This conquest of Makkah is significant. Why? Because it is, we see it as a rescue. A rescue of the, the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Kaaba, from the you know, shirk which had infested it for many, many, many centuries. So it had been rescued and brought back to the worship of Allah, where it is a place, a sanctified place, for the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <clears throat> Once that conquest had been made, it meant that a new era, a new time, in which the whole of the Arabian Peninsula and beyond could be invited to Islam with you know, a type of strength that had not been seen before. Now, before we come to the conquest itself, there are some events that lead up to the conquest. And so, one of those events... Now one of, those, one of those events that took place, we have to really go back to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Because the conquest of Mecca itself, why did it take place? It was because the Mushrikun acted treacherously, yet again. Another act of treachery. So to understand the background to this, we have to go back to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And if you recall, in the details of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, one of the clauses was that... The various Arab tribes that were present, they were free 
to make their own contracts either with the Muslims or with the Quraysh, with the Mushrikun. And they were free to make their own treaties. And if they made treaties with the Muslims or with the, with, with, with the Mushrikun, those treaties had to be adhered to. And if any of those treaties or those tribes were you know, uh, attacked or aggression was made against them, then the party to which it was allied would have the right to, to retaliate. In other words, for example, let's say the Quraysh make an ally or a treaty with some other tribe, a tribe who is not part of the Hudaybiyah Treaty. Now that tribe is allied with the Quraysh, and so the Muslims attack that tribe. This now allows the Quraysh to attack and retaliate against the Muslims. Why? Because this is the term of the treaty. Conversely, the other way around. If the Muslims, out of their own free will, made a treaty with any other tribe, and then someone from the Quraysh transgressed against that tribe, then the Muslims would be allowed to retaliate. This was one of the clauses in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Now, uh, it so happened that a, a particular tribe called Banu Bakr, Banu Bakr, they made a treaty with the Quraysh, they made an allegiance with the Quraysh. And another tribe called the Khuza'a, Khuza'a, they made, or they joined the Prophet Wasallam. And so they, love, they lived in peace for a short while until one of them, they had obviously rivalries and things like that going back to the days of Jahiliyyah. And so one of these tribes, the Banu Bakr, uh, some issue triggered off and it triggered some uh, hostilities and Banu Bakr, they came and they attacked Banu Khuza'a in a particular place called Al-Watir. And so Quraysh who were allied to Banu Bakr, they came to the support of Banu Bakr and they fought against Banu Khuza'a. And so this is a clear violation of the treaty. Because the Quraysh have now have engaged in transgression against a tribe who made an Allah, who made a treaty with the Messenger of Allah. This is a clear violation of the treaty. And uh, this members of this tribe, Khuza'a, they came to the Haram seeking sanctuary, hoping that those uh, Banu Bakr that they would respect the sanctuary because fighting was prohibited, they wouldn't kill. But Nofal, the leader, he did not respect any sanctities. He sought them out and he killed them in the haram, where blood should not be shed. So this was, uh, you know, not just a violation of the treaty, but an additional violation on top of that as well. Now, the Banu Khuza'a, naturally they came back to the Muslimin, and they came to the Prophet and the Messenger of Allah he demanded from the Quraysh, Three things. He gave them three options, or he demand, made, made three things. Accepting any one of them would resolve the situation. The first of them was to, play, to, to pay blood money for the victims of Khuza'a who had been killed unjustly. To, play, to pay them blood money. Secondly, to immediately terminate their alliance with Banu Bakr, meaning the Quraysh had to sever that to uh, annul the treaty with Banu Bakr, who were the transgressing party. Or thirdly, to consider the truce to have been nullified. Now remember, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was a truce for 10 years. Okay. 
Here the Messenger of Allah, he look at look at from his generosity, he gave them three options. Three options. Pay blood money, cut off your alliance with Banu Bakr, any one of these three. And if not, if you don't do any of these two things, which are the easy options, then basically you have violated, you have broken the terms of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. You have acted treacherously, and basically this is an announcement, it's an announcement of war. Because the Treaty of Hudaybiyah was to defer war for a period of 10 years. So they, they, have now, they, they clearly now have the chance. Either they can demand Banu Bakr, their allies, to pay the blood money. Or they can cut off their ties, their treaty, their agreement with Banu Bakr. Or it will have to be the default, which is that you have violated the terms of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Now, um, Quraysh, they realized that they were in a really bad situation. They put themselves in a really bad situation. And what they did was they called for an emergency meeting to decide what to do. And so they called, in, they, they brought their chief Abu Sufyan. And they decided to send him to Medina to try and to, you know, win some favor and to negotiate, you know, things of this nature. So remember, the three propositions have been put to them. You have these three choices. Instead, what they did was they sent Abu Sufyan in order to, you know, to do some diplomacy and to get themselves outside of the situation because they were in a very difficult situation. So Abu Sufyan came, came to the house of his daughter, Umm Habiba, radiallahu anha. And uh, he went into the house of his daughter, he went to sit on the mat, that was the mat of the messenger of Allah And she took the mat and said, you cannot sit upon this because you are a mushrik, najas, you are an unclear polytheist. And so he, you know, he, he said, you know, he, he was upset about that. Uh, and but she said, it is the messenger of Allah's carpet. And you are an unclean mushrik. And so being disgusted at how his daughter, what she said to him, he went out and he went to see the messenger of Allah, who was in his room. And again, message did not really entertain him or what he was trying to achieve. Then he went to Abu Bakr. He got nothing. Then he went to Umar. He got nothing. Then he went to Ali bin Abi Talib. Each of them refused to have any kind of engagement with him. Why? Because the proposition had already been made to the Quraysh. So what happened is that Abu Sufyan turned back to Mecca. He was disappointed. And there he told the Quraysh about what had happened, that he'd been, uh, you know, uh, no one entertained his uh, attempts at diplomacy. And so this meant that the Meccans failed in this attempt to basically save themselves. Now, the Messenger of Allah, knowing from Revelation that the Quraysh would behave that the way they were going to behave, he began to organize um, preparations, to make preparations to make a battle against the Mushrikun of Quraysh. And the preparations that were being made were, to kept, were basically to be kept a, a secret. Uh, so as not to alert the mushrikun in Mecca to be aware of what was going to take place. And so, um, by the activity that was taking place, 
in Medina, the preparations that were taking place, the Muslims in Medina had realized that something had uh, happened without them knowing the details. They were aware that something would ha- had happened, so they kind of suspected that the, that, the, that the treaty had been violated by the uh, Quraysh. And so, um, the Messenger of Allah, he wanted to make sure that the news didn't filter through back to the uh, Quraysh. So he sent an, uh, a small contingent of eight men to go outside of Medina and to you know, keep a watch to make sure you know, on people coming in and out to make sure that the news doesn't go out and you know, uh, go, go to the Quraysh. Now, you can see that this is now a secret preparation of war and it's basically a news blackout right, to prevent the mushrikun to know what is taking place. But in this context, there was an incident that took place. And this incident involves a companion by the name of Hatib bin Abi Balta'a. Hatib bin Abi Balta'a. Now this companion, radiallahu anhu, he was one of the very close trusted companions of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi And what he did was that he sent a woman, a female messenger, to Mecca with a message to inform them that the Messenger of Allah is preparing for a war against you. Right? So basically he revealed the secret of the Messenger of Allah and gave strategic information or what was to, to reach uh, the, the, the mushrikun. Now through revelation, the Messenger of Allah he was informed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of this. And so he sent two companions, Ali, and Al-Miqdad with instructions to go and find this female messenger and to find this message. So they went, they pursued and they found this woman and they uh, discovered that there was a letter that was hidden in the locks of her hair. And in this letter, there was uh, information regarding the you know, uh, preparation of the messenger of Allah for, you know, for, for, for battle, for war against the Mushrikun, against the Quraysh. So this was then brought back to the Messenger of Allah and so he summoned Hatib bin Abi Balta'a radiallahu anhu and asked him about this. And what did Hatib, what did he say? He said, O Messenger of Allah, I, you know, he says, Look, I don't have any blood ties with the Quraysh, but I have only a friendly relationship between them and myself. I have family. <clears throat> my family is in Mecca. My own family is in Mecca, but I myself have no blood ties with them. And my family, there's no one to look after them, no one to protect them. And so my situation is unlike the situation of the others because my family is in a very precarious situation. So I thought that if I gave them or did them a favor, then it would be good for my family to be protected from the Quraysh. They would see it as uh, an action of goodwill on my behalf, on account of which they will not harm my family. And <clears throat> he, sa- he added on top of this that I swear, by, I swear by Allah, I did not do this out of ridda, out of apostasy, out of abandoning Islam, but I only did it for the reasons which I explained. And so at this, Umar bin, uh, Umar bin Khattab, who was present, he said, allow me to cut off the head of this hypocrite. 
he accused him of being a hypocrite. And the Messenger of Allah he said, uh, Hatib is one of those who fought in the Battle of Badr. And how do you know that he's a hypocrite? Allah is likely to look favorable upon those who participated in the Battle of Badr. And so then he turned to Hatib and he said to him, Do whatever you wish, do as you please, for indeed I have, I have pardoned you. Now this incident is a, an important incident because the scholars, the scholars of Islam, Tawheed, the Sunnah, they derive so many important lessons from this incident in relation to one of the fundamental principles of Islam, which is Al-Wala Wal-Bara, which is loyalty and disloyalty. And this is one of the one of the uh, subject areas in which the khawarij, again the khawarij, the khawarij ajuhal, they are ignoramuses. They do not understand the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There are no scholars amongst them. They do not know the tafasil, the details, the distinctions, the classifications. And because of that, they make huge mistakes in great serious topics such as these, which relate to issues of life and death. And so what they, so, so, so this incident of Hatib bin Abi Balta'a, the scholars discuss this incident, and they use it to explain the different types of loyalty and disloyalty. If you are disloyal, <coughs> what type of disloyalty would make you a disbeliever? What type of disloyalty would make you a sinful Muslim. And so, to explain this in a, in a nutshell, basically, when we look at the uh, tafsil of this issue in the books of the scholars of Tawheed, the books of Shaykh al-Islam, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, and likewise his offspring, we find that basically, that uh, the issue of al-wala wal-bara itself comes down to Love and hate in the heart. Its asal is love and hate in the heart. And so as for, as for loyalty, a type of loyalty that would make you a disbeliever, that would make you leave the fold of Islam, it is a type of aid that you give to non-Muslims against the Muslims wanting in your heart, wanting in your heart or, the, or having in your heart some love for the deen, for the religion of the non-Muslims, right? So for example, we have a, a, a person, an influential person amongst the Muslims, right? He gives some aid and support to some Christians or to some Yahud or, or to some Mushrikun. He does it, why? Because in his heart, he's amazed or he likes or he loves, he has an inclination to the deen, to the religion, to the actual deen that they believe in. The deen of the Yahud, the deen of the Nasara, the deen of the Mushrikeen, right? Because of his love and affinity and his like of that deen or its tenets, he decides to aid them against the Muslimin. Or, and this, is, this one is actually a type of hypocrisy, where you aid someone against the Muslimin, wanting the deen of the Muslims to be, you know, to, 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 to go weak, wanting it to become weak. Right? These types of things are affairs of disbelief. Hypocrisy or disbelief. And a person would leave the fold of Islam on account of that. Now, 
There's another type of loyalty which is shown, which was which is an outward type of loyalty. But the motive behind it, maybe, it could be the first example. It could be that you want to remove some evil of the mushrikun. You want to protect yourself from some evil that might come to you. So outwardly, you show an act of loyalty, like like what Hatib did, right? He showed an outward act of loyalty. He betrayed the Messenger of Allah. He revealed some of the secrets of the Messenger of Allah. And he wanted to do that because of some worldly reason. He wanted, it was so out of fear of the harm upon his family. So he did what he did. And he was mistaken in what he did. And this would be a major sin for a Muslim to do. But in the case of Hatib bin Abi Balta'a, because he is a companion who partook in the Battle of Badr, and because, Allah, you know, because of the, the people who fought in the Battle of Badr, they, they had proven themselves in their iman and their sidq and their love of the Messenger of Allah and their love of Allah. So Allah, as, as, as the Messenger informed us, that he you know, was forgiven. So this itself does not make someone to be a disbeliever. Or it could be out of a worldly gain. So this example of Hatib was out of fear in the dunya sense. Or it could be where it is you know, you, you show some loyalty out of wanting to gain something in the dunya. Again, this is, this is like a major sin. It does not expel you from the fold of Islam. Now the Khawarij, Khawarij do not understand these affairs because they are Juhal. They have no ulama. They do not understand the verses of the Qur'an. They don't interpret the verses of the Qur'an in light of the Sunnah. And so they make absolute blanket judgments. This ruler... He gave a gift to this non-Muslim ruler. This therefore now is loyalty. This now is a support and aid of the deen of the mushrikeen. So therefore he is a kafir. He is a non-Muslim. Right? And it applies to every level. Like for example you might say, this shows their jahl. Like for example in, in this country for example. If we learn... That there, that there are some of these khawarij who are involved in plotting and planning certain actions of terrorism, of betraying the trust, that which might bring harm to either the Muslims or the non-Muslims. In fact, it will always bring harm to the Muslims because even if they you know, do an act of terrorism which harms only non-Muslims, the effect and impact of that will be harm upon the Muslims as well. It is a duty upon a Muslim. Why? Because we are living under contract. If you are in this country, you are living under contract with a non-Muslim ruler or a non-Muslim government. You are obliged to adhere to that contract, which means that you do not act treacherously, you do not do things unlawful like taking life, which is prohibited, things of that nature. If a Muslim knows that someone is plotting and planning actions of terrorism, it is a religious obligation for us to inform the authorities of those people who are opposing. This is a treachery. This is a treachery. This is the, the fulfilling the contracts is the greatest of the uh, aspects of Islam. In Islam, violating contracts is the is from the greatest of the major sins. Do you ever see the messenger ever violate a contract? Never ever. So Islam upholds this issue of contracts and honoring the contracts. 
These khawarij, what they are doing when they're living in this country and plotting and whatever else and doing and trying to bomb men, women, children, whether Muslims or non-Muslims, this is from the greatest violations of Islam. It is, it is an act of treachery and it is a lie against Islam. And so Muslims, so now this is something that the Sharia informs us and tells us. This is what a Muslim ought to do. To inform the authorities that such and such, if you know for sure and you are certain that they are engaged in actions which are going to turn out to, you know, uh, someone's death or harm or loss of property or whatever else, then you should have no qualms in informing about these people because these people, as we said, they are the, the khawarij, they are evil, they are scum, they have been described with the most despicable of descriptions in, in the sunnah. The companions use the verses of the Quran against them, which are mentioned in the, in, 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 uh, in, 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 in the Quran that they are uh, wretched in this life or misguided in this life and losers in the hereafter now these people they would see this as an act of loyalty to the disbelievers and therefore judge us to be disbelievers why? because we are trying to uh, protect the greatest elements of Islam which is the fulfilling the contracts O you who believe, awfu bil uhud, fulfill the contracts, fulfill your obligations. And so this shows the twisted mentality of the Khawarij, which is why they, you can understand why they've been called the dogs, dogs of hellfire. They are dogs. They have no understanding. They have no aql. They have no scholars amongst them. They have twisted ideas that cannot be reasoned with. You can't reason with, with twisted ideas. And so for that reason, the statement here of Hatib bin Abi Balta'a, I ad- obviously, this is a topic itself, but I advise you that on this issue of al-wala wal-bara, loyalty and disloyalty, when it is disbelief, when it is not disbelief, when is it something permitted for a worldly benefit, as in terms of repelling harm, when is it a major sin, all of these different issues, you should learn about these issues and be clear in your mind about these issues. Because these khawarij bring all of these shubuhat and they treat things which are perfectly normal. Like for example, giving gifts to non-Muslim rulers for an objective in the Sharia. This is perfectly permissible. Right? There are many things which are permitted in the Sharia. Trade relations between Muslim and non-Muslim nations, perfectly permissible. So what they do is they take things which are halal, lawful, permissible, and in fact, inevitable. As Imam Shankiti mentions, that the necessity of trade relations between Muslims and non-Muslims is an absolute necessity. Otherwise, the beneficial interest of the dunya could never ever be fulfilled. It's an absolute necessity to have these relations and you know good terms and so on and so forth. And he's discussing this in the wider context of the, the, the verses of, you know, the issue of, of, of jihad and so on and so forth. Right? That the ruler can make uh, trade relations and treaties and agreements and it's at his disposal. Right? So, so the point being is that this entire issue of al-wala wal-bara in the context of this incident which took place with Hatib, it is a crucial issue that we should uh, learn about and understand from our scholars. And there are many, you know, tafsilat, many details from our scholars available be absolutely clear in your mind about these issues and do not fall prey to the emotional rhetoric of the, of the khawarij. So what we'll do is, uh, 
we, we'll stop at this point uh, in the lesson. Inshallah, we'll continue with the, uh, the details of the conquest of Makkah in the next lesson. Uh, we'll conclude there today. Uh, والحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين